great to have you here this morning. And we want to welcome you today, whether you're here in this room or over in our chapel venue, or if you're watching us uh, online or in our video cafe, welcome to Portico today. It's great to have you in our service. And we're going to jump right in. I want you to take out your Bibles if you have your Bibles with you. And uh, if you would like to borrow one of our Bibles, then our ushers are ready to serve you in that way. Just lift your hand up nice and high and keep it up there until they come. And you can borrow that this morning. Just leave it on the chair uh, before you leave. We're going to turn to Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 3. It's right at the very beginning of the book. You could kind of thumb your way there. And while you're doing that, this is also a good opportunity to get out your sermon notes so that you can follow along with us. And if you're following on a smart device, you have the Portico app available to you, and all of our fill-in-the-blank notes are there as well. We're in the second week of our series, Clash of the Titans. Clash of the Titans, and we're talking together about this epic and cosmic battle, the clash between good and evil. Now, we know that God is good. Now, we know that God is good. Amen. We know He's good. And last week, we were introduced to the evil side of the equation, to the devil or Satan. And we understand from what we covered last week that the devil is not God's counterpart, He's not on par with God, but that he is a created being who rebelled against God, a fallen angel who was thrown out of heaven, and now he operates in the domain of this world and has targeted people, God's creation, in order to turn them away from God. He has no power over God himself because God created him. He rebelled and now has made himself this enemy or adversary of God. And in his domain, he moves stealthily among humanity and he masquerades in an effort to tempt people to do evil and to turn them away from God. He has power, but his power is limited and is no, in no way equal to or greater than God's. And we learned last week that if we equip ourselves in God, if we read His Word, if we, if we pray, if we seek God's help and the power of His Holy Spirit, that, that you know, we need to, to expect to be tempted, but we can refuse to be defeated. That was good. That God helps us and He gives us a way to defeat and overcome the devil in Jesus' name. So today... We're going to talk about high treason, high treason. And we're going to look at a a concept that many people, we don't like to talk about sometimes because for the most part, you know, we think we're all, we're all okay. We're all pretty good, you know, because we, we all like to think that, that people are inherently good and that if we could all just, you know, work together and love each other, that, that we could make the world a better place. Well, I hope that, that, that last part actually is true. But what we want to look at today is this concept of what we call original sin. You ever heard that phrase before? Original sin. I I read a great article this week from an archive of Christianity Today by a lady named Marguerite Schuster. And I wanted to share just a little bit of it with you. She wrote, she said, Legend has it that G.K. Chesterton, asked by a newspaper reporter what was wrong with the world skipped over all the expected answers. He said nothing about corrupt politicians or ancient rivalries between warring nations. He he didn't say anything about the greed of the rich and the covetousness of the poor. He left aside crime and unjust laws and inadequate education, environmental, environmental degradation and population growth overwhelming the earth's carrying capacity. That was not on his radar. 
Neither were the structural evils that burgeoned as as wickedness became ingrained in society and its institutions in ever more complex ways. What's wrong with the world? As the story goes, Chesterton responded with just two words. I am. I am. Now, G.K. Chesterton was a theologian, a, a writer, a poet, and a Christian apologist. One of his books, The The Everlasting Man, was the reason that an atheist named C.S. Lewis became a Christian. He was was touted as one of the best writers, not just Christian writers, but but all writers, one of the best writers of the 20th century. So, So how could a man like this think that he was what was wrong with the world? And then, you know, if he was what was wrong with the world, then then what does that say about me? What does that say about us? Because this current generation of society, we, we don't like an answer like that, do we? I mean, this is a generation that has been schooled to cultivate self-esteem, to pursue, you know, its dreams and passions and chase self-fulfillment first and foremost. We are a generation that says there are reasons for our failures and our shortcomings. It's, it's not our fault that we were born with, you know, the, with the parents that we have. It's not our fault that we were born with the genes that we have and had the upbringing that we have. And so, you know, we, we look at things like that, that particular teacher that made us so self-conscious and ashamed of our mistakes that we were never able to excel. And besides, you know, we're, we're no worse than any of our friends. You see, that, that any of the negative eventualities that happen in our lives could somehow uh, be because of us, we've been told, is highly unlikely. We are a product of genetics and our upbringing and our environment, but deep down, we are all good people. Isn't that what we're taught today? Isn't that the, the mantra of our society today, that you know, in, in everybody there's some good? Well, go back to Chesterton for just a moment. What he was talking about was this, was this exactly. He was talking about original sin, that every single one of us, deep down, and I'm really sorry about this, I'm sorry to let you know, but deep down, we are, we are not good people. Ouch. But we're not. And that's what he was talking about. But that actually, deep down, from the time we are born, every single one of us has this ingrained propensity toward sin. Wise King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, he said, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. There's nobody like that. But wait, if we're created in God's image, how does that compute? How is this possible? Well, we want to talk about that for a few minutes today, and so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3, and we're just going to go all the way back to the story of creation, to the Garden of Eden, and let's look together, Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, 
the serpent said to the woman. You know what? God knows that, that if you, you know, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When you've heard that, it says, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And then she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So here's the scenario. In the middle of God's garden and the wonderful story of creation, enter that slithering serpent, Satan. You love all the S sounds that we can use with that? It's fun. Try it. Slithering serpent, Satan, who was talking Satan comes and, and he's talking to Eve. Who was this talking, crafty serpent? You know, did you ever ask yourself this? Did all the animals talk in the garden? That would be kind of interesting. Well, there's no indication of that. We don't, we don't think that they did. No, this was not, uh, you know, just your run-of-the-mill serpent or snake. This was, in fact, the devil himself. Satan takes all kinds of forms as he operates in his domain, even masquerading as an angel of light, the Bible tells us. And so it's not that much of a stretch for us to believe that he comes in the form of a serpent. And so it's within this scenario in the garden, surrounded by God's amazing creation, both plant and animal life, that these two you know, new human beings, Adam and Eve, come face to face with Satan, with the devil. And Satan launches his attack against humanity. And so there's three key words that we want to just look at today that, that frame for us the big thoughts that lie at the core of this idea of original sin. And the first word I want you to write down in your notes is this. It's actually the word treason. Our title today is High Treason. And treason treason is the overarching act of Satan that began this entire journey. The definition of the word treason is, is telling. It, it talks about the offense of acting to overthrow government, but actually it's, its central idea. The definition you know, states that treason is a violation of allegiance to one's sovereign or one's state. It's a violation of allegiance to one's sovereign. Well, Satan's act of treason, we know, because we talked about this last week, it didn't originate in the garden, did it? It originated in the heavens before creation when Satan or Lucifer set himself up to be like God. If you remember the, the verse from Isaiah that we talked about last week, it says, Satan said to himself, I will ascend to heaven and I will set my throne above God's stars. And then he goes on and says, I will be like the most high. Treason, treason a violation of his allegiance to his sovereign creator. And now he's thrown out of heaven and Satan takes the form of a slimy, slippery, sneaky snake and slithers his way into God's new garden with the express purpose as an enemy of God to mess with God's creation and to bring down his humanity. You ever notice this about negative and disgruntled people. Negative and disgruntled people, they're not satisfied to be cranky by themselves. Have you noticed this? 
They want to they bring everybody into the party. They're not satisfied. They aren't happy unless they can pull someone else down with them. Misery loves company. That's where we get this expression. But I want you to know it started way back here in the garden because Satan wasn't going to rest until he pulled down Adam and Eve and, and ultimately all of creation with him. So with Satan, it's, it's even more than that, though. It's not about, it's not about just liking loving company. His, his act of temptation in the Garden of Eden was directly targeted not at Eve and Adam, but at God. It was an act of treason against his sovereign. Knowing that he didn't have enough power to take God on directly, he intentionally targeted God's ultimate creation, mankind. And by tempting and deceiving Eve and getting Adam to disobey, Satan thought that he was just sticking it to God. I'll show him, he thought. I'll get, I'll get his creation to turn on him and disobey. And this was Satan's modus operandi from the beginning. It was his evil plan all along. It was personal. He wanted to hurt God by hurting God his creation. And so the deception began. This talking snake came to Eve and said in verse 1, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? See what he's doing there? He's seeding doubt into her mind. Seeding doubt into her mind by saying, did God really say? It's one of those openers that kind of gives you pause, isn't it? You know, we're talking to somebody and they use a phrase like that at the beginning and they start with a question. Kind of, it gives you pause. And you, you want to stop and you want to think. You know, you, hmm, did God say that? He asked a question that he knew the answer to. You see, God hadn't said that at all. But the deceiver was setting her up, setting her up for the next big clincher that was about to come. Because when she answered, And when she said, no, you know, God didn't really say that. He said we can eat from any of the the fruit of the trees except for this one. But if we eat of this tree, we're going to die. And when she said that, Satan pushed further and said, surely you won't die. Oh, come on, really? You're not going to, you don't think you'll actually die. And then he does this. He says, God's just afraid that you're going to be like him and know what he knows and understand the difference between good and evil. And he laid it out there, and Eve took a a moment to think about that. And he tricked her into taking the fruit. He made it seem so desirable to her in her mind that when she looked at it with her eyes and she thought about, you know, the knowledge of good and evil, she thought about being, it made her want it, and so she took it and she ate it, and then she also gave it to her spineless husband, Adam, to eat. Sorry, guys, I'm not one of the people that believe this is all Eve's fault. She had a part to play, but Adam should have known better. And so there's a lesson here. Sometimes temptation is just enough to make us pause and think. But it's in the moment of the pause that we've got to make a critical decision. Do we entertain the thought in our mind? Do we dwell on that thing? And we shouldn't because it's in that second of entertaining the thought that makes us, you know, makes the act seem more appealing to us. And once that's happened, it's only one more slippery and dangerous step toward looking 
and wanting and then taking. See, lots of times you're going to be given a reason to pause. But I want to just tell you today, don't entertain in your mind anything that once acted on would cause you to commit a sinful act. If you catch yourself pausing, then purpose in your heart not to ponder on the sin, but to pray for God's strength and to push on. If you catch yourself pausing, then purpose in your heart not to ponder on the sin, but pray for God's strength and push on. Satan's treasonous act in the garden was just the beginning. He continued throughout history to attack God's creation, and eventually he set his sights even on the chosen people of Israel. It says in 1 Chronicles 21 that Satan rose up against Israel. Satan himself rose up against Israel, and this treason continues today. This is what Satan does. He is the adversary who is out to kill and destroy. John 8, 44. He writes and says he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 10 and 10 says the thief comes for only three reasons. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. His agenda is to harm you and to turn you away from God the Father, from the God who who kicked him out of heaven. He's got an axe to grind. He holds a grudge. And that's what Satan's all about. Even when John writes down the revelation of Jesus and records words about Satan's eventual demise, he references this. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, he says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. That's what he's about. It's treason from the very beginning. Treason began in the heavens before creation. But Satan's treasonous acts continued in God's garden and they continue today because his mission and his agenda is to stick it to God. He is an adversary and an enemy of our God and of all that is good. And he accomplishes this by going after God's creation. Treason is the underlying reason for this clash of the titans for the battle between good and evil. So there's the word treason. Then there's a second word that I want you to write down that helps us frame this bigger idea of original sin. And that's the word treachery. Treachery. These two words are, are very close together if you look in the, in the dictionary. But treachery speaks also of deception and untrustworthiness and betrayal. And in Satan's words to Eve, he wasn't just trying to get her to, to taste some fruit. It wasn't just about that. There was a much deeper, more insidious and evil plot in his mind. When he said to her, did God really say? Did God really say? He was actually raising this question in her mind that would ultimately cause her to question God. Is God trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? Can can you trust God? That's what the devil was saying. And further, when he said to her that she could be like God, oh, that she could know good and evil, Well, he was setting her up to do the very thing that he had done that had gotten him kicked out of heaven in the first place. He was suggesting that she equate herself with God. Hmm. You know, the the parallels between Satan's rebellion as an angel in heaven and the way that Eve became deceived into thinking that she could be like God are, are, are uncanny. 
Satan's treachery against mankind is just an extension of what began way back there. It's an insidious plot to plant in all of us a desire to be like God. He wants us to think. He wants us to think that we can be the God of our own lives, that we can be the God of our own existence and do as we please, be the masters of our own destiny, to, to throw off restraint and to be ruled by our baser instincts without, and desires of living within a set of, you know, without living in a set of healthy boundaries. He wants us to throw off restraint. And so we look at the statement that God made after, you know, reaming out the devil and talking about the effects of the curse in verse 22. He says this, the man has now become like one of us. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is present in creation. He says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And it was Satan's treachery that led to this knowledge. He deceived the woman and he deceived Adam, who blindly took and ate as well, ensuring that sin would be the legacy handed down to the rest of the human race. And so began this disease of original sin. The concept that would have G.K. Chesterton say that, that he was what was wrong with the world. That concept that we are all sinful from birth and there is nothing we can personally do about it. We are all sinful. The Apostle Paul framed for us much of what we believe about this. Romans 3 and 10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. He goes on in Romans to explain that sin entered into the world through one man. That's what we've been talking about, through, through Adam. And in Romans 5, 12 to 13, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Because all sinned. You know, there's another quote from that article that I referenced earlier. And, uh, and she writes and she says this. She says, What happened in Eden didn't stay in Eden. Eden was not like Las Vegas, right? You know, we joke about, about those kinds of those phrases, but, but she says, what happened in Eden didn't stay in Eden. What went wrong in the beginning marks everything that follows. It is this treachery of Satan that set in motion a legacy of sin that would impact not just the initial players in the garden, but every person to be born in the human race from, from that time until, until eventually one day in the new heaven and the new earth, God will relegate the devil and his minions to rot in hell forever. But until that time, that's going to be a good day. But until that time, you know, we still got to deal with this, this influence, this influence of Satan in the domain of our world. And we can see his influence all around us. Evil is everywhere. We can, you know, there's, there's no question that there is evil in the world. To me, the only question, you know, that some might ask is this, where does evil come from? Well, now we know. Now we know it comes, it comes from us. It comes from us as a result of Satan's treachery, but it was handed down to us from Adam as a legacy of sin. Theologian Charles Hodge, he wrote and he said this, he said, original sin is the only radical, rational, I'm sorry, the only rational solution of the undeniable fact of the deep, universal, and 
early manifested sinfulness of men in all ages, of every class, and in every part of the world. Paul said it in Romans 3. He said, no one is exempt. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. David said, you know, I, I, was, I was born in sin. I was, I was shapen in iniquity. I was knit together in my mother's womb as a, as a sinful human being. But there is one last word that I want to talk about today before we're finished. When it comes to this big idea of original sin, lest we all go away, you know, depressed and throw our hands in the air and say, what's the point? I'm sinful. There's nothing that can be done about it. Well, if it's true, you know, there is, there is nothing that you can do about your own sinfulness, at least not on your own, but there is something that has been done. There is something that has been done about it, and all we have to do, all we need to do is trust. We need to trust. We need to trust in the promise of God. That last word is trust because when God encountered Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, he launched his own plan of attack against sin and against his enemy, the devil. As a matter of fact, he was never worried. You know this, right? You know that none of this was plan B. God was never worried. There was a plan from the beginning. It was a plan that was, that was always in his mind. He knew that this eventuality would one day take place. And this plan had already been set in motion from before the world began, the Bible teaches us. It was just a matter of God revealing it. And so here's what went down. God came to walk with Adam and Eve in the evening, but he couldn't find them, so he he called out to them. Now, he didn't call out to them because he didn't know where they were. He called out to them so that they would know that he was there, so that they would know that he was there. You know, when God calls out to us, it's not because he's an angry God, it's because he wants us to know that he's there. Isn't that good? He wanted them to know he was there. And when they came out of hiding, they said that they were afraid because they were naked. And God said, hmm, who told you you were naked? And this is where we have the first recorded mention anywhere in the history of the world of someone being thrown under the bus. Because what did Adam say? Spineless Adam. He said, she gave it to me. It's her fault. The woman, not only that, you know, it's the woman you, the woman you gave me. Wow. Come on. Thump, thump. You know, there goes Eve. She's under the bus. God turns to Eve and he says, you know, Eve, is this true? Eve says, well, kind of. You know, the serpent tricked me. He deceived me. I was tricked. And then I ate. And then God turned to the serpent the devil. He turned to the enemy, his adversary, and he cursed him. And he made this promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15. He said, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Oh, this is the good part. This is the promise. God did this He did it in in earshot of Adam and Eve so that they would know about the promise, so that they would learn to trust in the promise. One day, he said, one day, devil, one of Eve's offspring, one of her descendants is going to come, and when he comes, he is going to stomp on you like the snake in the grass that you are, and he's going to maim you. He's going to crush your head, devil. 
He is going to crush your head and you may, you know, you might cause him some pain. It says, it says you will strike his heel. You might cause him some pain and suffering, but he is going to be the beginning of the end for you, Satan. So watch out. That day is coming. A love that we can trust in the promise in spite of the treachery and the treason of the devil. God turned to Adam and Eve then and he told them about the difficulties that they would face because of their disobedience. He said that Eve would endure pain in childbirth and she would be subject to her husband and and Adam would have to learn to work by the sweat of his brow and and work hard and get his living from the, the land and they would be able to, they would not be able to stay in God's garden. And one day, God said, even this, he said, one day you're going to die and you're going to go back to the dust where you came from. Folks, our sins, our sins always have consequences. Disobedience brings discipline. We reap what we sow. It's a biblical principle. But notice that God did not speak about the consequences to Adam and Eve without first giving them the hope of the promise. He delivered the promise before dispensing the punishment. He said, I've got this. I've got your backs. One day, a son from your race will come, and he's going to defeat this deceitful snake. And that's a promise. But for right now, know this. You know, there's going to be some consequences, but I will take care of you. I will take care of you. I will cover you. I will look after you. The Bible tells us in Genesis 3 and verse 21 that the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now, how did God get animal skins to make clothing for Adam and Eve? How did that happen? Well, I think it's obvious how it happened. And it's very, very interesting. Obviously, he had to kill an animal to accomplish that. From the very first time in history, in the history of the world that somebody sinned, something had to die in order for sin to be covered. And Paul tells us in Romans, he says, the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It's also interesting that later in the story of Cain and Abel, it was the slaughtered lamb that was the pleasing sacrifice to God and not the grain and the vegetables. And then no wonder that hundreds of years later, the system of worship that was given to the Israelites was one of of animal sacrifice and shed blood that would foreshadow, oh, this is good, that would foreshadow the death of our Savior Jesus Christ one day on a cruel cross so that we could have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. You see, sin brings death and destruction, but God always had a plan that we could trust. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a promise that we could hope in. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul references the first and the second Adam. And he's talking about about Adam in the Garden of Eden who became a living being when God breathed into his nostrils. But he's also talking about the second Adam, about, about Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who came to crush the devil's head. And the second Adam, he says, is more than a living being. He is a life giving spirit. Sin and death entered into the world through the first Adam. And that was passed on to all of us. Nothing we can do in our own strength. Paul says that, that in this way, death came to everyone because everyone has sinned. Original sin, Satan's treason in the Garden of Eden, traced throughout the history of the human race and handed down from generation and to generation until today. 
There is no one righteous. All have sinned. But, but, Jesus coming was a game changer. Jesus, the second Adam, came so that he could take the sins of all mankind upon himself and become the once and for all sacrifice for your sin and for mine. He lived a sinless human life. He was tempted just like we are. He faced the same challenges and frustrations that we face growing up as a young boy and into a man in that, in that Jewish culture. He experienced great joy. He experienced sadness and loss, all the things that we experience. And then, then he was falsely accused and put on mock trial and brought before the, the rulers of the day and sentenced to death. And he was crucified like a common criminal on a cruel cross, giving his very life for our forgiveness and our salvation. But he did not stay dead. He rose again, and he ever lives today to intercede for us before his Father. And all we need to do in order to have the gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life that Jesus offers is to trust that he did it for us. I have to trust that he did it for me. You have to trust that he did it for you. And if you'll trust, you will trust that original sin no longer has power over you because trusting in God's promise erases Satan's treachery. Trusting in God's promise erases Satan's treachery. Triumph was realized through Jesus' death and resurrection. And in that moment, Satan was a defeated foe. He is a defeated foe today. If your faith and your trust is in the one who crushed his head. Oh, oh, wow. Romans 5, Romans 5 says this, 15, verse 15. This is good. Don't miss this. There is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. Original sin is real. All of us are sinful. The sin of one man brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I don't know why that would not excite you. I don't know why that would not encourage you. I don't know why that you'd not be, you know, maybe even jumping up and down a little bit because Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. But if, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, and you feel the weight of your sin, you feel the weight of the wrong things that you've done in your life, then I want you to know something this morning. You're not a bad person. Okay, when we talk about original sin, we don't, we don't mean you're a bad person. What we mean is that, that there is this sin that, that weighs us down, and, and we're, we're born with it, we're stuck with it. We're not bad people. You are a victim of the treasonous acts of Satan and of his treachery. You're a victim of a sin nature that that all of us are born with, but you don't need to stay a victim today. All you need to do, all you need to do is trust in God's promise. Trust in Jesus Christ through whom we experience God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness. And all of that can change today. Do you believe it? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name right now, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you. We thank you that that original sin is not, God, this eventuality that there's nothing that can be done about, but that you came and that, Lord, you took care of it for us. 
We thank you, God, that, that Lord, in, in all that you do for us, that, Lord, there is this incredible grace, this wonderful forgiveness that comes if we will simply trust in your promise. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that today. As followers of Jesus, God, we celebrate that this morning. But, Lord, I pray for anyone who might be in this room who does not know you. And, Lord, I ask that right now by your Holy Spirit you will speak to their hearts. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, you might be here today and you say, Pastor Jeff, I feel the weight of my sin. I understand what it is that you're talking about. And, and I've, I've never known what it is I need to do about it. And you're here today and you need to know that simply by trusting in Jesus Christ and trusting in the promise of Jesus and his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, for the forgiveness of your sins and for new life in Christ, all you need to do today is trust. You need to say yes to Jesus. And so with nobody looking around, every head bowed, I want to ask you if you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I I need to do that today. Today's my day. I don't want to be a victim any longer. I need to say yes to Jesus. Would you just slip your hand up really quickly? And I'll see it, and you can take it down. And We're just going to wait a moment. Say, I need to say yes to Jesus today. I, I want, I want the, the freedom that you talk about. I want to receive and experience his grace. Is there anyone today? Just slip your hand up. No one's looking around. Just wait for a moment. Just wait for a moment. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Yes, thank you. Maybe I'll wait for another moment. Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. This is an important day for you. I I need to do that. I need to say yes to Jesus. I'm just going to wait for about 10 more seconds. Is there anyone else today? Yes, thank you. You can put it down. Yes, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you, Jesus. God, I pray for each person. God, who's raised a hand. Lord, you've seen every hand that was raised this morning. And you intimately know every circumstance. And so I pray right now, God, you'll give these individuals just courage to say, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sin, the wrong things that I've done. I want to start a new life today with you. I want to say yes to you in my life. And God, as they just pray some simple little prayer like that, God, give them an assurance. Flood their hearts with your love, I pray. Give them the courage to tell somebody about the decision that they made this morning. And God, help them to walk this new journey. And Father, for all of us who are in this room today, and Lord, those who are are watching online, God, those who are in our other venues, Lord, we just want to take a moment and we want to celebrate. We want to celebrate the amazing thing that you have done for us. That God, we have been set free today from the, the treachery and the treason of the enemy. And God, we celebrate and we give you praise and we trust in your promise in Jesus' name. Amen.